6. Hat sort of thing to go on indefinitely, if island indeed, quite a recent human development, all this great business of armament upon commercial lines is the growth of half a century, but it has grown with the vigor of an evil weed, it has thrown out a dark jungle of indirect advertisement, and it has compromised and corrupted great numbers of investors and financial people. It is perhaps the most powerful single interest of all those that will fight against the systematic mini-mesotion and abolition of war, and rather than lose his end it may be necessary for the pacifist to buy out all these concerns, to insist upon the various states that had sheltered them taking them over, lock, stock, and barrel, as going businesses, from what we know of officialism everywhere, the mere transfer will involve almost at once a decline in their vigor and innovating energy. It is perhaps fortunate that the very crown of the private armaments business is the Krupp organization and that its capture and suppression is a matter of supreme importance to all the allied powers. Russia, with her huge population, has not as yet developed armament works upon a very large scale and would probably welcome proposals that minimize the value of machinery and so enhance that of men. Beyond this and certain American plans for the making of rifles and machine guns only British and French capital is very deeply involved in the armaments trade. The problem is surely not too difficult for human art and honesty. It is not being suggested that the making of arms should cease in the world, but only that in every country it should become a state monopoly and so completely under government control. If the state can monopolize the manufacture and sale of spirits, as Russia has done, if it can after the manner of Great Britain, control the making and sale of such a small, elusive substance as saccharin. It is ridiculous to suppose that it cannot keep itself fully informed of the existence of such elaborated machinery as is needed to make a modern rifle barrel, and it demands a very minimum of alertness, good faith, and good intentions for the various manufacturing countries to keep each other and the world generally informed upon the question of the respective military equipments from the state of affairs to a definition of a permissible maximum of strength on land and sea for all the high contracting powers is an altogether practicable step. Disarmament is not a dream, it is a thing more practicable than a general hygienic convention and more easily enforced than custom and excise. Now none of this really involves the abandonment of armies or uniforms or national service. Indeed, to a certain extent it restores the importance of the soldier at the expense of machinery. A world conference for the suppressing of the peace and the preservation of armaments would neither interfere with such dear incorrigible squabbles as that of the orange and green factions in Ireland, though it might deprive them of their more deadly weapons, nor absolutely prohibit war between adjacent states. It would, however, be a very powerful delaying force against the outbreak of war, and it would be able to insist with a quite novel strength upon the observation of the rules of war. It is no good pretending that mere pacifism will end war, what will end war, what, indeed, may be ending war at the present time, is war against militarism, force respects itself and no other power, the hope for a world of peace in the future lies in that, in the possibility of a great alliance, so powerful that it will compel adhesions, an alliance prepared to make war upon and destroy and replace the government of any state that became aggressive in its militarism. This alliance will be in effect a world congress perpetually restraining aggressive secession, and obviously it must regard all the no man's lands and particularly that wild waste, the ocean as its highway. The fleets and marines of the allied world powers must become the police of the wastes and waters of the earth. The I. Now, such a collective control of belligerence and international relations is the obvious common sense settlement of the present world conflict. It is so manifest 
so straightforward that were it put plainly to them it would probably receive the assent of 19 sane men out of 20 in the world, this, or some such thing as this, they would agree, is far better than isolations and the perpetual threat of fresh warfare, but against it there work forces, within these people and without, that render the attainment of this generally acceptable solution far less probable than a kind of no solution that will only be a reopening of all our hostilities and conflicts upon a fresh footing. Some of these forces are vague and general, and can only be combated by a various and abundant liberal literature, in a widely dispersed battle in which each right-thinking man must do as his conscience directs him. There are the vague national antagonisms, the reservations in favor of one's own country's righteousness, harsh religious and social and moral cant of the Carlyle type, greed, resentment, and suspicion. The greatest of these vague oppositions is that want of faith which makes man say war has always been and must always be, which makes them prophesy that whatever we do will become corrupted and evil, even in the face of intolerable present evils and corruptions. When at the outbreak of the war I published an article headed, The War That Will End War, that once Mr. W. L. George hastened to reprove my dreaming impracticability. War there has always been. Great is the magic of a word. He was quite oblivious to the fact that war has changed completely in its character half a dozen times in half a dozen centuries, that the war we fought in South Africa and the present war and the wars of medieval Italy and the wars of the Red Indians have, about as much in common as a cat and a man and a pair of scissors and a motor car namely, that they may all be the means of death. If war can change its character as much as it has done it can change it altogether, if peace can be kept indefinitely in India or North America. It can be kept throughout the world. It is not I who dream, but Mr. George and his like who are not yet fully awake. And it is their somnolence that I dread more than anything else when I think of the great task of settlement before the world. It is this rather hopeless, inert, pseudo-sage mass of unbelievers who render possible the continuation of war dangers. They give scope for the activities of the evil minority which hates, which lives by pride and grim satisfactions and which is therefore anxious to have more war and more, and it is these inert half-willed people who will obstruct the disentanglement of the settlement from diplomatic hands. What do we know about the nuance of such things? They will ask, with that laziness that apes modesty, it is they who will complain when we seek to buy out the armaments people. Probably all the private armament firms in the world could be bought up for 70 million pounds, but the unbelievers will shake their heads and say, then there will only be something else instead. Yet there are many undogged forces on the side of the greater settlement. Cynicism is never more than a half-truth. And because man is imperfect it does not follow that he must be futile. Russia is a land of strange silences. But it is manifest that whatever the innermost quality of the Tsar may be, he is no claptrap vulgar conqueror of the Wilhelm Napoleon pattern. He began his reign, and he may yet crown his reign, with an attempt to establish peace on a newer, broader foundation, his religion it would seem, is his master and not his servant. There has been no Russian Bernhardi, and there has been much in America, much said and much done, since the war broke out that has surprised the world. I may confess for myself, and I believe that I shall speak for many other Europeans in this matter, that what we feared most in the United States was levity. We expected mere excitement, violent fluctuations of opinion, a confused irresponsibility and possibly mischievous and disastrous interventions. It is no good hiding an open secret. We judged America by the peace headline. It is time we began to offer our apologies to America and democracy. The result of reading endless various American newspapers and articles, 
of following the actions of the American government, of talking to a representative Americans, is to realize the existence of a very clear, strong national mentality, a firm, self-controlled, collective will, far more considerable in its totality than the world has ever seen before. We thought the United States would be sentimentally patriotic and irresponsible, that they would behave as though the new world was, indeed, a separate planet, and as though they had neither duties nor brotherhood in Europe. It is quite clear, on the contrary, that the people of the United States consider this war as their affair also, and that they have the keenest sense of their responsibility for the general welfare of mankind, so that as a second chance, after the possibility of a broad handling of the settlement by the Tsar, and as a very much bigger probability, is the insistence by America upon her right to a voice in the ultimate settlement and an initiative from the Western Hemisphere that will lead to a World Congress. There are the two most hopeful sources of that great proposal. It is the tradition of British national conduct to be commonplace to the pitch of dullness, and all the stifled intelligence of Great Britain will beat in vain against the national passion for the ordinary. Britain, in the guise of Sir Edward Grey, will come to the Congress like a family solicitor among the gods. What is the good of shamming about this least heroic of fatherlands? But Britain would follow a lead, the family solicitor is honest and well-meaning. France and Belgium and Italy are too deeply in the affair, or without sufficient moral prestige, for a revolutionary initiative in international relationship. Their island however, a possible third source from which the proposal for a World Congress might come, with the support of both neutrals and belligerents, and that is the Hague, were there a man of force and genius at the Hague now, a man speaking with authority and not as the scribes, he might thrust enormous benefits upon the world. It is from these three sources that I most hope for leading now. Of the new Pope and his influence I know nothing, but in the present situation of the world's affairs it behooves us ill to await idle until the leaders clear the way for us. Every man who realizes the broad conditions of the situation, everyone who can talk or write or echo, can do his utmost to spread his realization of the possibilities of a world congress and the establishment of world law and world peace that lie behind the monstrous agonies and cruelties and confusions of this catastrophic year. Given an immense body of opinion initiatives may break out effectively anywhere, failing it, they will be fruitless everywhere. Small but great so laid, by Rusty, from King Albert's book. The women of Great Britain will never forget what Belgium has done for all that women hold most dear. In the days to come mothers will tell their children how a small but great Soleil nation fought to the death against overwhelming odds and sacrificed all things to save the world from an intolerable tyranny. The story of the Belgian people's defense of freedom will inspire countless generations yet unborn. Zeppelin raids on London by the naval correspondent of the London Times from the London Times. January 22, 1915 some doubt has been thrown by correspondents upon the ability of the Zeppelins to reach London from Cuxhaven, the place from which the raiders of Tuesday night appear to have started. The distance which the airships traveled, including their maneuvers over the land, must have been quite 650 miles. This is not nearly as far as similar airships have traveled in the past. One of the Zeppelins flew from Friedrichshafen, on Lake Constance, to Berlin a continuous flight of about 1.000 miles, in 31 hours. Our naval officers will also recall the occasion of the visit of the first cruiser squadron to Copenhagen in September, 1912, when the German passenger airship Hansa was present. The Hansa made the run from Hamburg to Copenhagen, a distance of 198 miles, in 7 hours, 
and Count Zeppelin was on board her. Supposing an airship left Cuxhaven at noon on some day when the conditions were favorable and traveled to London, she could not get back again by noon next day if she traveled at the half-power speed which the vessels on Tuesday appear to have used, but if she did the run at full speed that is to say, at about 50 miles an hour she could reach London by 9 o'clock the same evening, had an hour to maneuver over the capital, and return by 7 o'clock next morning, with a favorable wind for her return journey she might make an even longer stay, given suitable conditions, therefore, as on Tuesday, there appears to be no reason why, as far as speed and fuel endurance are concerned, these vessels should not reach London from Cuxhaven, with regard also to the amount of ammunition a Zeppelin can carry, this depends, of course, on the lifting power of the airship and the way in which it is distributed. The later Zeppelins are said to be able to carry a load of about 15.000 pounds which is available for the crew, fuel for the engines, ballast, provisions, and spare stores, a wireless installation, and armament or ammunition, with engines of 500 horsepower, something like 360 pounds of fuel is used per hour to drive them at full speed, thus for a journey of 20 hours the vessel would need at least 7200 pounds of fuel, the necessary crew would absorb 2000 pounds more and probably another 1,500 pounds would be taken up for ballast and stores, allowing a weight of 250 pounds for the wireless equipment. There would remain about 4,000 pounds for bombs, or something less than 2 tons of explosives, for use against a target 458 miles from the base. This amount of ammunition could be increased proportionately as the conditions were altered by using an air base, or by proceeding at a slower and therefore more economical speed, and see. It is noteworthy that although the German airships were expected to act as scouts in the North Sea they do not appear to have accomplished anything in this direction. Possibly this has been due to the fear of attack by our men of war or aircraft if the movements were made in daytime, when alone they would be full for this purpose. What happened during the Christmas Day affair, when, as the official report said, a novel combat ensued between the most modern cruisers on the one hand and the enemy's aircraft and submarines on the other would not tend to lessen this apprehension. On the other hand, the greater stability of the atmosphere at night makes navigation after dark easier, and I believe that it has been usual in all countries for airships to make their trial trips at night. Illustration, radius of action of a modern Zeppelin The above outline map, which we reproduce from the Naval Annual, shows in the dotted circle the comparative radius of action of a modern Zeppelin at half power about 36 knots speed with other types of air machines. Assuming her to be based on Cologne, it is estimated that aircraft of this type, with a displacement of about 22 tons, could run for 60 hours at half speed, and cover a distance equivalent to about 2160 miles. This would represent the double voyage, out and home, from Cologne well to the north of the British Isles, to Petrograd, to Athens, or to Lisbon. The inner circle shows the radius of action of a Parseval airship at half power about 30 knots based on Farnborough and the small inner circle represents the radius of action of a hydro-aeroplane based on the Medway. It is customary also for the airships to carry, in addition to explosive and incendiary bombs, others which on being dropped throw out a light and thereby help to indicate to the vessel above the object which it is desired to aim at. Probably some of the bombs which were thrown in Norfolk were of this character. It is understood that all idea of carrying an armament on top of the Zeppelins has now been abandoned. 
and it is obvious that if searchlight equipment or guns of any sort were carried the full weight for bombs would have to be reduced unless the range of action was diminished. It will have been noticed that the Zeppelins which came on Tuesday appear to have been anxious to get back before daylight, which looks as if they expected to be attacked if they were seen, as it is fairly certain they would have been, assuming the raid of Tuesday to have been in the nature of a trial trip. It is rather curious that it was not made before. Apparently the Zeppelins can only trust themselves to make a raid of this description in very favorable circumstances. Strong winds, heavy rain, or even a damp atmosphere are all hindrances to be considered. That there will be more raids is fairly certain. But there cannot be many nights when the Germans can hope to have a repetition of the conditions of weather and darkness which prevailed this week. It should be possible, more or less, to ascertain the nights in every month in which, given other suitable circumstances, Raids are likely to be made, in view of the probability that the attacks made by British aviators on the Zeppelin bases at Dusseldorf and Friedrichshafen caused a delay in the German plans for making this week's attack. It would appear that the most effective antidote would be a repetition of such legitimate operations. Julius Caesar on the AISNE from the New Yorker Harold Morgenblatt. It has repeatedly been pointed out that 2,000 years ago Julius Caesar fought on the battlegrounds of the AIM which are now the location of the fierce fighting between the Germans and the French. It is probably less known, however, that in this present war Caesar's commentary de Bella Gallico are used by French officers as a practical textbook on strategy. The war correspondent of the Corriere della Sera reports this somewhat astonishing fact. A few weeks ago he visited his friend, a commanding colonel of a French regiment, in his trench, which was furnished with bare necessities only. In a corner on a small table lay the open volume of Commentary Cesaris, which the visitor took into his hand out of curiosity in order to see what passage the colonel had just been reading. There he found the description of the fight against the Ariemer, who, at that time, lived in the neighborhood of the present city of Rheims, principally with the aid of his Numidian troops. Caesar at that time had prevented the Ariemer from crossing the river Axoma, today called the Aim. Caesar's camp was only a few kilometers from Bariobuc, in the vicinity of Pontevert, the headquarters of the division to which the regiment of the colonel belonged. This colonel had received the order to cross the river Ain with Moroccans and spies, and for this purpose he had studied the description of Caesar. To the astonished question of the reporter, what made him occupy his mind with the study of Caesar? The Frenchman replied, Caesar's battle descriptions form a book from which even in this present day war a great deal may be learned. Caesar is by no means as obsolete as you seem to think. I ask you to consider, for instance, that the trenches which have gained so much importance in this war date back to Julius Caesar. Illustration, present and future queens of the Netherlands Queen Wilhelmina with her little daughter Juliana, Princess of Orange Sir John French's own story continuing the famous dispatches of the British Commander-in-Chief to Lord Kitchener the previous dispatches reviewing the operations of the British regular and territorial troops on the continent under Field Marshal French's chief command, appeared in the New York Times Current History of January 23, 1915, bringing the account of operations to November 20, 1914. The official dispatch to Earl Kitchener presented below records the bitter experiences of the winter in the trenches from the last week of November until February 2, 1915. The following dispatch was received on February 12, 1915, from the Field Marshal Commanding-in-Chief, the British Army in the field, to the Secretary of State for War, War Office, London, SW General Headquarters, February 2, 
1915. My lord, I had the honor to forward a further report on the operations of the army under my command. 1. In the period under review the salient feature was the presence of His Majesty the King in the field. His Majesty arrived at headquarters on November 30th and left on December 5th. At a time when the strength and endurance of the troops had been tried to the utmost throughout the long and arduous battle of Ypres Armentiers the presence of His Majesty in their midst was of the greatest possible help and encouragement. His Majesty visited all parts of the extensive area of operations and held numerous inspections of the troops behind the line of trenches. On November 16th Lieutenant His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, KG Grenadier Guards, joined my staff as aide-de-camp. 2. Since the date of my last report the operations of the army under my command have been subject almost entirely to the limitations of weather. History teaches us that the course of campaigns in Europe, which have been actively prosecuted during the months of December and January, have been largely influenced by weather conditions. It should, however, be thoroughly understood throughout the country that the most recent development of armaments and the latest methods of conducting warfare have added greatly to the difficulties and drawbacks of a vigorous winter campaign. To cause anything more than a waste of ammunition long-range artillery fire requires constant and accurate observation, but this most necessary condition is rendered impossible of attainment in the midst of continual fog and mist. Again, Armies have now grown accustomed to rely largely on aircraft reconnaissance for accurate information of the enemy, but the effective performance of the service is materially influenced by wind and weather. The deadly accuracy, range, and quick-firing capabilities of the modern rifle and machine gun require that a fire-swept zone be crossed in the shortest possible space of time by attacking troops. But if men are detained under the enemy's fire by the difficulty of emerging from a waterlogged trench, and by the necessity of passing over ground knee-deep and holding mud and slush. Such attacks become practically prohibitive owing to the losses they entail. During the exigencies of the heavy fighting which ended in the last week of November the French and British forces had become somewhat mixed up, entailing a certain amount of difficulty in matters of supply and in securing unity of command. By the end of November I was able to concentrate the army under my command in one area, and, by holding a shorter line, to establish effective reserves. By the beginning of December there was a considerable falling off in the volume of artillery fire directed against our front by the enemy. Reconnaissance and reports showed that a certain amount of artillery had been withdrawn. We judged that the cavalry in our front, with the exception of one division of the guard, had disappeared. There did not, however, appear to have been any great diminution in the numbers of infantry holding the trenches. 3. Although both artillery and rifle fire were exchanged with the enemy every day, and sniping went on more or less continuously during the hours of daylight, the operations which call for special record or comment are comparatively few. During the last week in November some successful minor night operations were carried out in the 4th Corps. On the night of November 23-24 a small party of the 2nd Lincolnshire Regiment, under Lute, EHMP cleared three of the enemy's advanced trenches opposite the 25th Brigade, and withdrew without loss. On the night of the 24th-25th Capt. J.R. Minshaw Ford, Royal Welsh Fusiliers, and Lute, E.L. Morris, Royal Engineers, with 15 men of the Royal Engineers and Royal Welsh Fusiliers, successfully mined and blew up a group of farms immediately in front of the German trenches on the Tukitbridu Road which had been used by German snipers. On the night of November 26-27 a small party of the 2nd Scots Guards, under Lute, Sir E.H.W. House, Bart, 
rushed the trenches opposite the 20th Brigade, and after pouring a heavy fire into them returned with full information as to the strength of the Germans and the position of machine guns. The trenches opposite the 25th Brigade were rushed the same night by a patrol of the 2nd Rifle Brigade, under Lut. E. Durham. On November 23 the 112th Regiment of the 14th German Army Corps succeeded in capturing some 800 yards of the trenches held by the Indian Corps, but the general officer commanding the Meerut Division organized a powerful counter-attack, which lasted throughout the night. At daybreak on November 24 the line was entirely re-established. The operation was a costly one, involving many casualties, but the enemy suffered far more heavily. We captured over 100 prisoners, including three officers, as well as three machine guns and two trench mortars. On December 7th the concentration of the Indian Corps was completed by the arrival of the Surahine Brigade from Egypt. On December 9th the enemy attempted to commence a strong attack against the Third Corps particularly in front of the trenches held by the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders and the Middlesex Regiment. They were driven back with heavy loss, and did not renew the attempt. Our casualties were very slight. During the early days of December certain indications along the whole front of the Allied line induced the French commanders and myself to believe that the enemy had withdrawn considerable forces from the Western Theatre. Arrangements were made with the commander of the 8th French Army for an attack to be commenced on the morning of December 14th. Operations began at 7 a.m. by a combined heavy artillery bombardment by the two French and the 2nd British Corps. The British objectives were the Petty Boys and the Middlestead Spur, lying respectively to the west and the southwest of the village of Wichita. At 7.45 a.m. the Royal Scots, with great dash, rushed forward and attacked the former while the Gordon Highlanders attacked the latter place. The Royal Scots, commanded by Major F.J. Duncan, DSO in face of a terrible machine gun and rifle fire, carried the German trench on the west edge of the Petty Boys, capturing two machine guns and 53 prisoners, including one officer. The Gordon Highlanders, with great gallantry, advanced up the Middlestead Spur, forcing the enemy to evacuate their front trench. They were, however, losing heavily and found themselves unable to get any further. That nightfall they were obliged to fall back to their original position. Capt. C. Bogdan Wetham and Lute, W.F.R. Dobie showed splendid dash, and with a few men entered the enemy's leading trenches, but they were all either killed or captured. Lute, G.R.V. Hume Gare and Lute, W.H. Patterson also distinguished themselves by their gallant leading, although not successful. The operation was most creditable to the fighting spirit of the Gordon Highlanders most ably commanded by Major A.W.F. Dayard, D.S.O., as the 32nd French Division on the left had been unable to make any progress. The further advance of our infantry into the Wichita Wood was not practicable. Possession of the western edge of the Petty Boys was, however, retained. The ground was devoid of cover and so waterlogged that a rapid advance was impossible. The men sinking deep in the mud at every step they took. The artillery throughout the day was very skillfully handled by the C.A.R.A.S of the 4th and 5th Divisions Major General F.D.B. Wing, C.B. Brig, General G.F. Milne, C.B.D.S.O. and Brig, General J.E.W. Headlam, C.B.D.S.O. The casualties during the day were about 17 officers and 407 other ranks. The losses of the enemy were very considerable. Large numbers of dead being found in the Petty Boys and also in the communicating trenches in front of the Gordon Highlanders, in one of which a hundred were counted by a night patrol. On this day the artillery of the 4th Division, 3rd Corps, was used in support of the attack, 
Under orders of the General Officer Commanding Second Corps, the remainder of the Third Corps made demonstrations against the enemy with a view to preventing him from detaching troops to the area of operations of the Second Corps. From December 15 to 17 the offensive operations which were commenced on the 14th were continued, but were confined chiefly to artillery bombardment. The infantry advance against Wichita Wood was not practicable until the French on our left could make some progress to afford protection to that flank. On the 17th it was agreed that the plan of attack as arranged should be modified, but I was requested to continue demonstrations along my line in order to assist and support certain French operations which were being conducted elsewhere. For, in his desire to act with energy up to his instructions to demonstrate and occupy the enemy, the general officer commanding the Indian Corps decided to take the advantage of what appeared to him a favorable opportunity to launch attacks against the advanced trenches in his front on December 18 and 19. The attack of the Meerut Division on the left was made on the morning of the 19th with energy and determination, and was at first attended with considerable success, the enemy's advanced trenches being captured. Later on, however, a counter-attack drove them back to their original position with considerable loss. The attack of the Lahore Division commenced at 4.30 a.m. It was carried out by two companies each of the 1st Highland Light Infantry and the 1st Battalion, 4th Gorkha Rifles of the Surahine Brigade, under Lute, Call, R.W.H. Ronaldson. This attack was completely successful, two lines of the enemy's trenches being captured with little loss. Before daylight the captured trenches were filled with as many men as they could hold. The front was very restricted. Communication to the rear impossible. At daybreak it was found that the position was practically untenable, both flanks were in the air, and a supporting attack, which was late in starting, and, therefore, conducted during daylight, failed, although attempted with the greatest gallantry and resolution, loot, call, Ronaldson held on till dusk, when the whole of the captured trenches had to be evacuated, and the detachment fell back to its original line, by the night of December 19th, 